Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this New Books Network podcast on public policy. My name is Leo Nascau, and today I'm joined by Sir Paul Collier. Paul is currently Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the Bravatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford and is a director of the International Growth Centre in London. He's a world-renowned development economist and an award-winning author, notably writing The Bottom Billion about helping the world's poorest countries achieve prosperity, and most recently co-authoring Greed is Dead with Sir John Kay, amongst many others in between. And today we're talking about one of those in-between books, all of which are highly enlightening, but today we're focusing on the future of capitalism. Now, this episode is not so as to substitute for reading the book, rather it's to supplement doing so, and you may have done so already. Published in 2018, it is a pragmatic and ambitious prescription for how wealthy capitalist democracies can address the new anxieties of the 21st century. Now, for all Paul's global work and illustrious CV, he still remains in touch with his upbringing in post-war Sheffield, a once thriving industrial town in the north of England in the United Kingdom. Paul, it is a pleasure to be talking to you this morning, and as much as being an intensely enjoyable and readable analysis of 21st century capitalism, this book is also quite a personal story for you, and I wondered if we could begin this episode by discussing how your personal perspective provides a microcosm for the anxieties afflicting contemporary capitalism, as well as illustrating an overview of what these anxieties are. Yeah, thanks very thanks very much, Leo, and thanks for doing this. Um, incidentally, I was brought up in a in an environment where to to turn down a public honour would have been atrociously ungrateful, but to actually use it would be even worse. It would be pretentious, right? So I never used the this knighthood and stuff. Um, uh, uh, so um, I, I'm what's called a fluke. Um, which is to say, from my background, you don't get to where I end up. Um, And not many people did in my day, um, but far less people do so now. Um, uh, If if I was your age, with my background, today I wouldn't stand a chance in the Britain of today. And I doubt whether I'd stand a chance in the America of today. So what's my background? Well, both my parents left school when they were 12. Um, My my dad um, uh, uh, grew up in what was classified as a slum, and the slum was cleared, and he was moved to a a housing estate on the uh, outskirts of Sheffield um, with a lot of other poor people who were slum cleared. And he there, he worked as a pork butcher. Um, and uh, and relatively late in his life, he married my mum, who'd also left school aged 12, and uh, she ended up as a shop assistant. And uh, so it was a shop assistant that got put together with a pork butcher because neither of them had ever married, and uh, they were both a bit shy. And so some mutual friend decided this was a nice pairing, which it was. Um, So I grew up with, as the only child of elderly parents who just, just, just got married and, uh, um, and had no education at all. Um, Now, Sheffield's not a fashionable city. Um, In fact, it's the least fashionable city in the the whole of the country. Um, 
um, uh, I'm sometimes compared with a uh, with a guy who um, also was the son of a butcher, uh, and he went to school in Leeds, which was a bit more fashionable or a bit less unfashionable. Um, and he wrote a, uh, a a famous little play um, um, uh, about uh, really about himself growing up and. He was a fluke who got to Oxford, um, but to increase the authenticity of it, he set his play not in Leeds, but in Sheffield, and not in his school, but in mine. Um, and uh, he, he lists the, in, in a mounting crescendo at the end of the first act, uh, his disabilities, uh, which go, uh, I'm short. Short people don't do as well as tall people. I'm gay. Uh, those in those days, gay people uh, were discriminated against. And then the final thing in the trio of disadvantages, the mounting disadvantages, I'm short, I'm gay, and I'm from Sheffield. But of course, he wasn't from Sheffield, but I am. <laughs> so I started from the wrong place with parents who had no education. And by a series of lucky breaks, I found myself at Oxford, um, where... Um, I, I sort of, you know, I rose. I started as the most junior form of academic life um, and have now ended up the most senior form. Um, uh, and um, and meanwhile, I had a chair at Harvard. Um, I um, had, uh, I, I was the head of the research group at the World Bank. Joe Stiglitz brought me in and... Um, uh, and I'm still a professor at Sciences Po, one of the uh, elite écoles uh, uh, in Paris. Um, so I've been spectacularly lucky um, for anybody, but from my background, I'm a fluke. Um, now, all my relatives stayed in Sheffield, and, um, and Sheffield became the emblematic broken city of the 1980s. It had two industries, Sheffield and its region, steel and coal, and they both completely collapsed. And that was the that was my relatives. Um, there's a famous film called The Full Monty, uh, which you're too young to have seen, but it's a very funny, poignant, uh, comic film. Um, one thing about Sheffield people is a very strong sense of humour. Um, uh, but, but that was my relatives, and it, it was a they were living through a tragedy, you know. So one of my relatives ended up; they, 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 a lot of them ended up losing their jobs. One found another job cleaning toilets and that sort of stuff, you know. So my relatives were going through hell, um, whilst I was in this paradise of Oxford and success. And um, and and now I'm I'm bringing up two of my kids are. are was salvaged from um, my my relatives who um, were so poor and um, discombobulated by the the chaos of the life that they were thrust into um, that their kids were removed by social services um, uh, disgracefully, um, and so I, I rescued them and I bringing them up. Um, 
Uh, I'm very pleased to say that the 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 elder of those two uh, wants to go to Sheffield University because I've brought him up with a sense of, of belonging. Anyway, so that's me. And what was it? But what made Sheffield emblematic of a broken city? What's happened in the past decades to? Yes, okay, so it all happened pretty fast in the early 1980s, and it was a mixture of um, really stupid macroeconomic policy of the time uh, and, and over-appreciated exchange rate, um, uh, and Sheffield was an export city. Um, and so suddenly the export industries, the steel industry, which had been... Um, a world, the world centre of specialist steel, um, with a very skilled workforce, um, that suddenly be- became uncompetitive, and it coincided with the strategy of South Korea trying to develop its own steel industry, and so the cluster that made Sheffield so prosperous, uh, the cluster of firms and skills, um, collapsed and moved to South Korea, and these clusters, are they're sort of locally stable in the technical economic sense that if you if you deviate within a little range, they'll go back, the cluster will reform because there's so many scale ad- advantages in being in a cluster. But, but if you push it, push the shock too far out of that range of local stability in the mathematical sense, um, then the whole thing implodes. Um, f- some firms start to shift to South Korea or get outcompeted by South Korea, so the cluster starts to shrink, so the scale economies of cluster collapse, um, and that the whole system implodes. So it, it imploded very fast. It had been there for 700 years, right? I mean, if you read your Chaucer, um, it, it describes the Sheffield knife, um, you know, that was in the 1200s, right? Um, uh, so there'd been a steel skills in the city for centuries, and that was the real um, uh, the real local advantage was people belonged to place, and these people with enormous skills um, all belonged to Sheffield, and so they wanted to stay in Sheffield, and that meant that the industry was there, the firms were there because the people were there. And so we've had this shock of globalization really in recent decades. But at the same time, this isn't the first time that capitalism has derailed, had a crisis. And compared to in the past, Sheffield and other similar cities have been able to bounce back. What were we missing in recent decades that would have helped us group together as a, as a community? And yeah, so- as you say, there's been at least two previous big derailments. And in both cases, um, we did sort of bounce back. Not just the places, but the whole country. You know, um, we bounced back from mass unemployment in the thirties. We bounced back from a health disaster in the eighteen forties. Um, we learned, and we learned from that. We experimented, and we did something about it. Um, this one, um, there's been no bounce back. Of the top, of the twenty places in Britain hardest hit by the collapse of the eighties, Sheffield was one of them. Um, uh, of the twenty of those twenty collapses, only one has bounced back, and that was Corby, which was the hardest hit of all. Now, why on earth did the hardest hit place bounce back? 
when none of the other places bounced back? Well, the answer is it was so bleeding obvious that Corby was going to be a total disaster that public policy nationally did something about it and worked with the local government and community to do something about it. And so that was a case where we actually took place seriously and tried to do something about it, and it worked. But in the other 19, nobody bothered. You know, there's, there's been 40 years of something called regional policy, and it has persistently and consistently failed because it's been uh, too small, too timid, um, too siloed uh, in one, you know, there's always one magic bullet that's supposed to be fixed, or it needs education, it needs this, it needs this. rubbish. These places face a syndrome of interdependent problems. It's, it, what caused the problem in the first place is actually irrelevant to the solution. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I read a, a great piece by a very fine economist, Richard Caves, professor at Harvard. It was one line which stuck in my mind. It said, there need be no logical connection between the cause of a problem and its solution. And I thought about that, and then um, and then finally I understood it. So here's an example, right? You, you, you're walking near a, near a cliff, and uh, you hear voices, you look over, you lean over, you look over the cliff and there's a beach down below and people are playing on the beach and you lean a bit too far, you fall down, you crash onto the beach and break your leg. So it's very clear what caused the problem, right? You're a bit too curious, really, right? Um, it's very clear what the problem is. You lie on the bottom of the, on, you lie on a beach with a broken leg, mm-hmm. right? Um, it doesn't help at all if you climb back up the cliff and get back to the top of the cliff, right? Um, it just doesn't help one little bit, right? There's a very clear solution. You probably need a helicopter, right? But the solution is completely independent of the cause. And in a place like Sheffield, you've got a syndrome of interdependent problems. Um, people now have the wrong skills for future jobs. Um, uh, the, there are no major firms in the city. This is a big city, fifth or sixth in Britain. There are no major firms. All that's they're all smashed. All that's left is small and medium firms, SMEs, and there is no finance in the city to enable them to to grow. Um, and so we got Sheffield's got two really good universities. One of the top hundred in the research, in research in the world, one of the top teaching university in the whole country. Um, so it's with great universities, but there's no passage from the ideas in those universities and the young people coming out of those universities through to um, firms that form, grow, um, and become nationally and globally significant. That that. That happens all the time in Oxford, where I am, and in Cambridge, which is another university um, you might have heard of, um, uh, and and it happens in London. Uh, But it doesn't happen outside the southeast, and that's because not only is government entirely concentrated in London, but so is finance. Finance is even more concentrated, if, if that were possible, government 
And so we've got a completely over-centralized system spatially. Um, the, and the people who are running that system don't even know what's happening elsewhere and care less. And at Root, in, in the book, you trace this, I think, at, at its heart to changes in our approach to ethics. You talk about um, utilitarianism, rules and freedom and, and how the proliferation of ideas associated with um, and Mill, how this has really sowed the seeds in a mindset of government, I suppose, that doesn't appreciate the things that really matter when you're building out these communities and trying to build these clusters. Would you mind talking a little bit more about the role that the ethical side of things plays? Yes. So, um, uh, and it goes back in a way to what is, to human nature. Um, and we're mammals, but we're a very unusual form of mammal. Um, uh, we're uh, extremely pro-social um, and there's a very good evolutionary reason for that. I'm a big fan of Joe Heinrich, um, uh, the head of evolutionary biology at Harvard, um, who's done a couple of wonderful books, start with The Secret of Our Success, um, uh, and Nicholas Christakis, his counterpart uh, at Yale, um, who's also got a marvellous book called Blueprint. I was, I was, I was on, a, on a Zoom with Joe Heinrich yesterday, so you know, I'm very much in touch with these people. Um, uh, but what they've realized is that um, the very process of human evolution made us a very unusual mammal because coming down from the trees, we had to work in big groups. And so we had to learn how to cooperate and trust other people in big groups, um, which apes that stayed up in the trees had a very much easier life. Um, they had a constant temperature, fruit to pick, Life was easy. Uh, down on the savannah, um, we were very um, unsuited to protecting ourselves. We didn't have proper claws or, uh, or you know, or cladding or anything. So we were very vulnerable. Um, and what on earth were we going to eat? Um, uh, how on earth do we catch these big, fierce animals that are trying to eat us? So we came together. So we're a very unusual mammal. Um, we're pro-social, we care about others, we cooperate. Um, and uh, we are also very imaginative. Um, I, I've got a little comparison with a squirrel, I think, because um, I write my books under a tree in a wood. Um, and, um, and I watch the squirrels, and the squirrels are bloody clever. Um, you know, they're very good at running up and down trees and jumping across, and they think ahead. If I could get my teenagers to think ahead as well as a squirrel, I'd really be pleased because squirrels, you know what they do? They store nuts for the winter. That's thinking months ahead. That's really smart. My God, I mean, my teenagers uh, can't think ahead more than, a, you know, a few minutes. So it's fantastic. They're, so squirrels are very smart. But if you want to understand what a squirrel was like 100,000 years ago, easy, just look at one today. As far as we can see, no squirrel has ever thought, I wonder if there's a better life than running around, jumping around, up and down trees and gathering nuts. Um, even if they have thought about it, they've not done anything about it. But humans genetically were identical to what we were like 100,000 years ago. Um, but if you want to understand what a human was like 100,000 years ago, that's no good looking at one now. Right? Completely, totally different. 
And that's because we've got imagination and creativity. So the genius of humans is this ability to cooperate in teams and to be to imagine better worlds and then to do something about it, be creative. And of course, it's much easier to imagine better worlds than to actually create those better worlds. Um, and that's the existential struggle that plunges us into uh, continuous uncertainty. Um, but, it, but it makes us naturally morally load-bearing animals. We are very unusual because we are designed to be morally load-bearing towards other people in a community. Um, and that is really the secret of our success, that we're, we're moral creatures within a community, caring about others in the community and building mutual obligations. And that process of building mutual obligations, recognizing we've got obligations to others, creates a machine which matches perfectly the obligations and the rights. So that engine which says all the rights we have are fulfillable because we've got obligations to each other. That's the genius of a, of a communitarian approach to rights. And tragically, that got abandoned and uh, both by the right and the left. Um, uh, the, um, the right denied the sense of community and talked about the, uh, the high-achieving individual. Um, we are not, we don't have obligations to others. The successful, we deserve our success. Um, I'm talking to a top businessman who, who said, in my day, becoming a chief executive was a, was a responsibility. And now people who become chief executives see it as a prize, a reward. I deserve it. Huh? And so on the right, they marched away from mutuality towards individual, I deserve it. I'm smart. Right? Uh, and on the left, they also marched away from mutuality to this uh, screeching of my rights. So that both on the right and the left, you've got this retreat into individualism. Um, uh, and if all I have is rights, who's got the obligations? And the answer is the state. Um, and so the we, we shrink from a world of mutuality where we are a community of interdependence to a ghastly world in which there's just a state showering down rights and angry individuals demanding more rights and a state totally overloaded, unable to meet all those rights because it, the state is increasingly distrusted. If you look at young people today, there's a big difference between young and old. Young are much more infected by individualism than old people because it's something that's grown over the last 50 years, the individualism. Uh, and young people don't trust the state. They don't even trust each other. Right? It's a very low-trust youth we've got at the moment. And that's, that's a hell of a problem because um, 
uh, governments need to be trusted and they need to be able to build willing compliance. Let me talk a little bit about leadership here. Um, The archetypical bad leader uh, is somebody who believes that they have gained their position because they deserve it. They think they're super smart. They know what to do. And their problem is that underneath them, there are other people just like themselves, greedy, lazy, and selfish. Um, So there are shits at the top trying to force shits beneath them to behave well, to do what they, the top people, know should happen. And the solution to that is incentives closely linked to monitoring and scrutiny. And that's the world we built, which shreds responsibility from ordinary people. Ordinary people are in a tick box world where they just have to follow orders. Um, And if they uh, deviate from orders, they are punished. And if they follow orders, they're incentivized. Um, But they shredded of moral responsibility, of judgment. They're shredded of judgment. In an uncertain world, we really, really need judgment, and we've eviscerated it. Uh, So that's the the structure of leadership we've got. Um, I'm smart. Um, uh, And that's true to an extent on both the left and the right. This describes both Donald Trump and Gordon Brown. Um, um, uh, uh, I'm reminded of um, William James's 1896 lecture as a will to believe if you believe this of people eventually they will become as you expect them to be that that's the that's the killer point that's completely right that um uh humans because we're a mammal we can be dragged down if we're placed in a setting where we're treated as if we're just uh, a greedy lazy selfish uh creature like a cat um we end up behaving that way. But we can equally be raised up by a different style of leadership to use our judgment and to become morally load-bearing. And that style of leadership is not the leader as the know-all commander-in-chief, I'm smart, I deserve it. It's a leader who's humble, modest, admits that they don't know what to do, Um but communicates well because they're trusted. They win the trust of people, often with a bit of humor, modest humor, self-deprecating humor. Um, And with that combination, leaders can set goals. And by setting goals um, and then saying, I don't know how to achieve it, they devolve agency to where that agency is best accomplished in teams. And so you, a good leader is a communicator-in-chief, admits they don't know what to do, sets a goal, and then devolves agency, and then the teams struggle. Each team struggles to achieve it in its own way. One of them hits a solution, and then the secret of our success, Joe Heinrich's phrase, is we learn very rapidly from others. That's what other species can't do. If you test um, three-year-old apes, three-year-old chimps against three-year-old kids with little puzzles, 
the three-year-old chimps are just as smart as the three-year-old kids. You know, put this triangle through this hole. Right? Um, so Homo sapiens sapiens, you know, super, super smart man, we're not that smart, right? The distinctive feature is that once a child has learned how to do it, the other children copy that very rapidly. That's the secret of our success. Chimps don't do that. They cannot learn from each other. Huh? That's hard to believe, but it's actually true, right? So the secret of our success is this ability to uh, work in teams, in parallel, experimenting, and then a good leader says, right, this team's worked, um, let's learn from it. And so a good leader sets a goal, devolves agency to teams, and then um, hoovers up the learning as rapidly as possible, rapid learning. Um, if we applied that to a real-world problem like COVID, um, much the most successful country in the world, uh, pretty well right the way through, has been Denmark. And I know the political leader there, Meta Fredriksson, is very good. He's a single mother, um, not that much education, to be honest. Doesn't matter. Huh? Uh, when she says we to other Danes, um, they hear her as we, because she's just like them. She's one of them. Huh? She's not speaking from a corporate jet. Um She's not speaking from a top of a balcony to the massed admiring hordes. Um, she's just an ordinary person. And so she said, you know, here's COVID. Um, we don't really know what to do about it, but it's obviously contagious. Um, and so uh, try not to give it to your neighbor. That's your moral responsibility, just as it is mine. Um, so if you're an old guy like Paul there, who's much more in danger of covid that could kill him. Um, Paul, please stay out of the way of busy young people so they can get on with their lives. Um, uh, people need to send their kids to school. So, but that means young people, if you've got a, fa a young family, try not to kill granny, right? Um, and so they completely missed the first wave of COVID. They completely missed the second. They got caught at Christmas with the third. Um, and they very rapidly got it back under control because they said, oh, you know, we, we, let, we let our guard down. Um, and so they've had the lowest excess mortality of pretty well any country in the world. And they've had the lowest economic hit of any country in the world. So they, they didn't say, oh, we'll save lives at the expense of the economy or the other way around. They achieved both by really pushing down the responsibility for action and a very clear action to ordinary people. Now, if we go across the pond to America, uh, I remember in March 2020, um, when Americans finally woke up to COVID, um, what was the response? Long queues outside gun shops. Right? You check the videos, right? So um, this was less a case of protect your neighbor uh, than of shoot your neighbor, um, which isn't a particularly effective response to COVID. Um, uh, but that was the result of 40 years of individualism, rampant individualism in America, both on the right and on the left. Um, and uh, so that's that's the moral order uh, 
the moral difference between an organization which builds us up to be the best of what we can be as pro-social, imaginative um, uh, humans with able to, ma- able to make judgments in difficult situations versus uh, turning us, uh, dragging us down into being no better than a greedy, lazy, selfish cat. And similar to Denmark, other countries that have also dealt with the pandemic, well, New Zealand and Taiwan are two that spring to mind. Just like with Denmark, when your political leader says we, listeners have a clear identity. They know who the we is and it's a cohesive identity. And I think there's a difference there in comparing it to comparing these countries to the US and even the UK. The the identities that people associate themselves with are different. What do you think about this? How much is that sense of community and cohesion and identity underlying this individualism dynamic? I think what's happened, um, this is, and this is a slightly different set of arguments, but it's very closely related, is that uh, what's happened in Britain is not really identity fragmentation. It's a peeling off by the, the most successful from uh, uh, identity with, with others. Um, and this is where's the most successful? It's people like myself who live in either London or the, 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 the big prosperous places of the southeast. And so it's spatially specific. Um, you know, in America, it's New York, uh, Stanford, uh, you know, New York or the West, the, the coast, basically, or Washington, where I used to live. It was a cluster of um, very uh, you know, s- smug people. Um, um, who, so it's a spatial concentration, but it's also the people who had a good education. So we've got a new class divide, which is between what I call insiders, um, the people who've got a good education and live in the right place, and everybody else. And the people who've got a good education and live in the right place have really become the new class, the new establishment. Um, and um, they have peeled off their identity from their fellow citizens. And they're much more comfortable um, with the same class in the metropoles in other countries than they are with their fellow citizens um, in, uh, in the, with less education uh, in the provinces. Um, and um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a part of both these worlds. I'm, I, I'm uh, part of the educated uh, metropolitan elite, um, uh, and I, an awful lot of my friends are just, just, just that, just that. And I get on with them very well. And, and a lot of them are, you know, in France, in Germany, wherever, all around the world. Um, uh, um, but I'm also attached to my relatives in Sheffield and my friends there. Um, and so I'm, I'm a, ver- a very freakish case of somebody who belongs to both worlds uh, and sees that I, I could not mix my relatives and friends in Sheffield with my uh, elite um, metropolitans. They, they wouldn't know how to talk to each other. Um, and the, the, the smug elite, and I call them smug because that's what they are, to be honest, um, 
the smug elite have the nerve to describe themselves as citizens of the world. Um, They don't understand the concept of citizenship. They're citizens of the world, but not citizens of the only place where they really are citizens. Uh, And so they have contempt for their fellow citizens in England. Um, And that is truly shame. That really is, that contempt is literally adding insult to injury. Um, uh, And so that is what makes me, that's what puts the passion in what I write. um, Because my friends and colleagues in the, uh, in the the educated metropolitan world have to see what they're doing and have to start feeling ashamed of themselves. That's the beginning of, of, of changing our behavior. Um, I, at one stage, also peeled off. Um, and the rest of my life has been an atonement for that shameful action of peeling off from shared identity um, uh, with my fellow citizens and human beings in Sheffield. I suppose I saw not too recently, you wrote an article in, I think it was Prospect, about levelling up and HS2. I imagine you see a lot of what we've just talked about in the recent decision to um, tone down the ambition for HS2 in in the North. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the the one qualification I'd have to that is that restoring a place like Sheffield, renewing it, first of all, it can only be done by the place, um, mm-hmm. not by, you know, you, you can't restore Sheff, renew Sheffield from Whitehall. And, and secondly, it's renew rather than restore, I should have said, because um, the future of Sheffield is not going to be the same as the past. Um, and um, and the, the, the solution to the problem is not go back to the past, um, and remember, it's a syndrome of lots of things wrong. The skills are now wrong. Um, there are no, there's no finance for firms. There's not a strong enough link between the universities and, uh, and firm growth. Um, and the local transport system is very poor. Um, so the phrase build back better is a bit um, distracting in a way because it, it's too much emphasis upon physical buildings and then railways i mean um uh it would be nice to get hs2 built especially if you want to build the rest of it you know um uh and it is a sort of emblematic of the whole problem that um uh the the london to birmingham bit is a done deal um uh but the you know birmingham to the Leeds bid is, 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 is going to be dropped. Um, so that is a bit emblematic of um, uh, the priority is, is London, which is the wrong way around, really. Um, and we just see in an article today that uh, the mayor of London is uh, bleating for yet more money to be pumped into transport for London. Um, billions, you know. No, no. Sorry, London, you've been hugely overfavoured with infrastructure with every damn thing um uh the imbalance in public spending between london and provincial england and the imbalance in education spending uh research spending it's been massive skew 
because all these decisions are taken by um, the educated metropolitans who it never occurs to them to do anything else. There's a, there's a, there's a wonderful little thing I learned that it's, it's not in, it's not in the, the future capitalism, but it ought to be, um, which is um, uh, when during the midst of austerity, the Treasury was looking for budget cuts. One of the suggestions to ministers, which fortunately got squashed by the ministers, but one of the suggestions from the Treasury officials was, um, uh, why not close the colleges of further education? And the justification for it that they gave was nobody would notice. What they meant by that was only the nobodies would notice. None of our kids go to colleges of further education. That's for the half of the population that doesn't go to university. So why don't we just close them? Nobody would notice. That tells you who, what the mindset was and who were the people taking the decisions. They were people whose kids all went to university and who didn't, didn't even occur to them that, uh, that they had obligations to the half of the population that don't go to university. I mean, that, that was just a, a, rev- a revealing of a whole pattern of disgraceful behavior that went on for 40 years. This was not a political thing. 20 of those years were Labour, 20 were Conservative, right? Labour gave me a CBE, the Conservatives gave me a knighthood. Uh, I'm completely apolitical, and I think they are both morally responsible for a shameful and unique divergence. This this degree of divergence hasn't happened elsewhere in Europe. And that's an excellent segue, actually, of what I wanted to get onto, because I did want to talk for the last uh, probably nine minutes about how we how we do renew and the first thing that you've touched on a little bit is skills local economies that are um clusters where high skills both thrive and where everyone has the incentive to invest in in human capital as well as um sort of their their local areas and compared to the rest of europe the uk does this very poorly and you talk about Switzerland in the book being exemplary of this, and Germany, of course, has done very well. And in addition, Denmark, we've talked about its flex security system, is also very successful in this respect. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what these countries do so well and what Britain could learn in terms of developing skills. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're an awful long way away from doing this, but... Um... Let, let, let me give Switzerland. I, I think Switzerland is sort of best in class, really. Um, and um, and it's hard to replicate Switzerland because we're so far away from it. Um, but at least let's know what good would look like. Um, getting there, uh, we better look at something that's a bit more feasible. Um, um, but but what, what Switzerland achieved, um, I, I go to Switzerland quite a lot. Um, and... Um, I went to a, a a city that is not one of the fashionable Swiss cities, right? So this is the antithesis of Zurich. Um, and I was brought in by um, the uh, local um, business community. Um, they sponsored the trip. And um, the local business community, um, uh, as a matter of course, um, works with the local um, technical university, which is something between a, a British College of Further Education and a British university, um, 
Uh, and that's what Switzerland really specializes in, is these mid-level applied tech universities that work very closely with local firms. Um, and 60% of Swiss kids choose not to go to the full universities. I mean, it's got, it's got one of the top 10 in the world, Zurich. Um, but they choose not to because they can do much better for themselves um, following a, 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 the, the tech route. You can, you can become a chief executive of a Swiss bank without going to a, one of the universities. Huh? Um, so what do these, what's characteristic of this, this, this stuff is local. It's a local business community that works with a local um, technical university, applied technical university. And it's a seamless web between um, training done in the college and training done in the firm. So you'll do two days a week in one, three days a week in the other. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It will go on for three or four years. And um, the firm will sponsor you uh, and will guarantee a job at the end. So you're working towards a job in a firm. Um, but the firm knows that um, uh, although it will probably keep you for a long time, um, it will need quite a wide range of skills in you. Um, you'll start doing one little task, um, but over the course of the years, you'll need to be switched to different tasks. And so the training is not just in a particular skill. It's much broader than that. Um, In fact, they distinguish it's partly uh, life skills, things like um, grit, resilience, um, all the things that were the hallmark of a a Sheffield lab when I grew up in Sheffield, right? Um, They were the opposite, as it were, of a snowflake, if you forgive me. Um, uh, They were persistence, determination, grit, um, knowing that you'd have to struggle. Um, uh, And also there's life skills like be polite to a client. Um, If you're the face of the firm, um, uh, try not to be rude to the the customer, right? Um, And so basic skills, and this is what's taught, it's a full package um, uh, for four years, three or four years, you're paid and so you're, you're an apprentice, but you're paid. Um, and this is wildly expensive, but half the costs are financed by the local firms. They've got a lot of skin in the game. They're putting so much of their own money and future on the line, paying all this money, um, um, committing to a job. They make damn sure that these kids come out really, really employable, really productive. And this is a reciprocal obligation that's being built. It's it's so much of a reciprocal obligation that, and this is the really distinctive feature, and I picked this up in Germany as well. My grandfather came from a village outside Stuttgart, so I'm sort of persona grata going back to Stuttgart. Um, um, The the, the defining feature is that when when a local firm does this, it doesn't expect to be praised because it's, it's the opposite. It knows that if they didn't do it, if they were the firm that didn't join in with this, the chief executive would feel ashamed. 
and the management in that firm would feel ashamed. When they went to a dinner party or a drink in the bar, um, people would, you know, would, would be disapproving of them. It's that sort of social pressure that says, of course you've got to do this. It's what our community is Or is it another half of that is if you don't invest in your people, your business just falls behind? Look, it's both, right? It's, 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 it's as it were, deeply incentive compatible. It's, it's, it makes economic sense. Mm-hmm. You know, Switzerland is rather more prosperous than we are, um, decidedly more, right? Um, uh, so it makes economic sense, um, but it also makes, um, and we're not just greedy, lazy, selfish people, right? We really care about um, being being seen by our peers as um, as as decent people, not showing off, but just being fulfilling our obligations um, and um, getting the good opinion of others, not showing off to be top dog, just getting the good opinion of others. So the social pressures reinforce the economic incentives, it works. Um, And that overcomes, between them, that narrative overcomes the private incentives to free ride. And in Britain, where the apprenticeship system has completely collapsed, the incentive of an individual firm to free ride, to say, well, where will we get our skills? Oh, we'll get it from immigrants who've already been trained. Um, or we'll poach from another firm that's been stupid enough to do the training. We'll just pay them a bit more. Um, and so we've really spiraled into a syndrome of firm behavior in which um, nobody bothers to train um, because you'd be a sucker to do so. And so that's the dysfunctional locally stable equilibrium we're in, where don't be a sucker. Um, uh, and, uh, and at last, we're breaking out of that. That's why it was actually so important of, um, of, of Johnson to say, um, uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, opening the, the gates for, uh, for skilled uh, immigrants. I mean, um, it's, it's unfortunate, but um, that gate had to be shut before firms um, took seriously the need to train. Um, and that's why so much energy was put in by firms to avoiding that by saying, just, you know, we, we need it. We need skilled immigrants. Um, we need skilled immigrants because it's cheaper than training them. Um, if we've got our last two minutes, I can tell you the disgrace uh, that begins with the British Treasury and the uh, British, tra- the, the, the doctor's trade union. I wanted to go into the example of the Toyota workers and the Andon courts, but I think we'll have to ask people to read that in the book, and I'll yeah. uh, give you the floor for your example. Yeah, so this is doctors, right? So Britain has 18 of the top 100 research universities in the world, right? Uh, no other country has anything like that, right? And, of course, those 18 research universities have wonderful medical schools, all of them. Right? So we should be training far more doctors than we need and exporting them to other countries. Africa, where I do most of my work, has none of the top 100 research universities in the world. Um, 
But what's the treasury model? Um, each year, save some money. Oh, training a doctor is expensive. We've committed to all these degrees. Let's send them to do media studies um, rather than uh, medicine. Costs sixty thousand to train a doctor. It costs tons eighty to train media studies, or you know, some figure like that. So um, every year, the treasury has found an economy at the last minute um, uh, and cut the number of doctors that are being trained. So now we train less than half the doctors we need each year for the National Health Service. Where do we get them? Africa. I work very closely with the government of Ghana, which is a really good democratic government. They have to train more than twice the doctors they need in Ghana because more than half of them come to Britain. If you're telling me that's an ethical triumph of a borderless world, that Ghana spends money training its doctors in its universities, who then get poached by the National Health Service to run the British Medical British Health Service, that's not ethical, it's a disgrace. Why does the British Trade Union of Doctors like it? Because it keeps the top jobs, the fancy jobs, for the British doctors. That, to my mind, is deeply unethical. And why on earth NGOs are not screaming against it is another moral disgrace. They don't know or they don't care. They're part of this metropolitan bubble. And I think we have now reached reached the end of, of our time. The example of the Andron Corps is a wonderful illustration of how work, Japanese workers in Toyota um, are given the opportunity in case they see a fault to pull a cord and cause $10,000 worth of damage every minute, well, not in damage, of losses to Toyota. And it's a great example of reciprocal obligations because workers are given so much trust to, to blow the whistle um, to make sure that quality and to make sure that quality is upheld. Um, however, when we started just 55 minutes ago, um, I did promise that this would be to supplement reading the book rather than to substitute for it. And there is so much more in the book that um, is wonderful to read and really should be read. Um, so I would encourage anyone listening to do so um, and also to reflect on this discussion as well. Paul, thank you very much for joining me this morning. I hope you enjoyed the Thanks very much to you, well. I did. And of course, the, the denouement of the uh, and on cause is that Toyota bankrupts General Motors. Um, uh, the mutual trust works. That's the climax. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>